Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That, of course, is the opening to Revolver. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that is the opening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, we'll be talking about it. It is roughly, almost, kind of, 50 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. So that seems like a good time to be talking to Scott Fryman, a musicologist, composer, and producer, uh, and the lecturer behind Deconstructing Sgt. Pepper's. Also in studio with me, we would never do the show without Steve Metcalf, who's dragged himself from his sickbed. Uh, to join us. He's now director of University of Hartford's President's College. Uh, he writes about music for WNPR.org, and he is our music maven, expert, savant, all those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, Steve, you and I have been emailing back and forth today, although because you have a cold, you weren't a very robust <laughs> correspondent. But you know, one thing that I think you and I have agreed over the years, and, and I guess you say there, there may be consensus out there in Beatleland, Sgt. Pepper isn't the maybe the greatest musical accomplishment of the Beatles. It's the greatest cultural accomplishment. You want to flesh out that? that well, statement? yeah. All I mean, and I don't, I don't mean to sound uh, sort of excessively Beatle geeky, but you know, I think, I think when you think about it, and now that we've had fifty years to think about it, you know, it's not too much of a stretch to say that Revolver was the more dramatic advance musically from what had come before which was essentially Rubber Soul, than Sgt. Pepper was an advance from Revolver. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, if you just check the tracks, we can go one by one. I don't think we want to do that. But I think that's kind of received wisdom in many quarters these days, which is not to say, which is not to denigrate Sgt. Pepper and certainly is not to minimize the overall social and cultural impact of, of Sgt. Pepper, which I think for a variety of reasons was actually more profound. And, and Scott, I, I would like to begin that with, in fact, where your presentation ends, which was a, is, was a quote, I think, from Langdon Winter, where you, who says basically, yes. who describes, well, I'll let you describe it. Uh, what does that quote say? 
So he talks about the fact that when Sergeant Pepper came out, he was playing everywhere you went, and people were literally pulling into gas stations, and it was playing out out of the you know the diners and the malt shops and and people's houses. Everyone was listening to this. There's a great if you saw the program that's on. Um, PBS, forgetting what it's called, but uh, the one about production, about Roger Waters tells the story. Yes, Roger Waters tells the story of pulling over to the side of the road with the with Pink Floyd and stopping to listen to all of Sgt. Pepper when it was being played for the first time. It was so culturally, as, as Steve so eloquently put it, it was such a defining moment. And you have to remember, this comes at a time where the Beatles had pulled off the road, which was not something that bands were doing at the time. And there was no concept really of a studio-only band. And people thought this band had broken up or, you know, where where are they now? They'd come out with Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane. That single hits in early 1967. And everyone's just waiting with bated breath. What is this album going to be? Because the single was so extraordinary. And so it was like this built-up they were waiting for this album to be released, and when it came out, it was pretty extraordinary. And uh, I think that that's another thing which sort of added to the fact that, that Sgt. Pepper was seen as such a milestone, because it was a defining document from a band that was no longer going to be touring live. So, Steve Metcalf, what was the cultural change? And, and I, I, at one point, you cryptically, in an email uh, to me, said <laughs> that music became everything. Well, uh, let me mean by that sphinx-like <laughs> statement? Well, well, if you can't decipher that, then I'm sorry. I can't help you. <laughs> let me just say, uh, sort of answer that two ways. First of all, just to follow up on, on what Scott just said, I have to say, because it was such a charming, I don't know, sort of never-to-be-repeated moment, that when uh, on July, uh, excuse me, Ju- June 1st of 67, when the album was released in the States and released, I think, throughout Europe as well, I happened to be driving home from college that day to my hometown of Schenectady, New York. I threw my two little, you know, crummy suitcases on the front lawn and raced downtown to the little record shop, which was literally the only record store in my town. And I and I kind of, I didn't think much of it, but I sort of had to elbow my way through some people who were standing around in downtown Schenectady on Main Street and, and did so. And I got inside and I said to the owner, Charlie was his name, I said, okay, I'm here for the Beatles album. And he, and he just kind of laughed at me. And he said, Steve, what do you think all these people outside are waiting for? <laughs> and I looked around and suddenly for the first time I realized there was like 200 people of various ages and hues standing around waiting for this album. So so that's just a little personal sort of uh, affirmation Including of... Including the infant Jonathan McNichol in his baby carriage. <laughs> you probably, may have knocked over Jonathan's baby carriage. Uh, I, I, I think I, now that I look at... Uh, I think I can, uh, I can see him in those. But um, all I meant was... Uh, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into this in some greater detail, is that when we talk about Sgt. Pepper as a cultural sort of touchstone, to, to use a word I don't even know what really means... Um, you know, among other things, music, even serious music, maybe especially serious music, had been in the throes of sort of uh, academically mediated 12-tone or serial compositional norms and and strictures and this sort of thing. And suddenly you had people like Stockhausen and Ned Roram, of all people, the, the great song composer, saying, wait a minute, this this is among the most interesting stuff being turned out you know, anywhere by anybody. And suddenly music just really did become sort of everything and anything, uh, uh, a situation that has 
lasted to this day. I want to come back to that idea, particularly the idea that the most popular musicians in the world, we've made this point before, but at this moment, the most popular musicians in the world were, in effect, avant-gardists. I mean, you know, that doesn't happen that, that often. But I want to begin our musical exploration with something that you, Scott, uh, made reference to just a couple of seconds ago, the fact that, in a way, this album, Sgt. Pepper, the of, really kind of includes two songs that aren't on it and two songs that, had they been on it, would have made Sgt. Pepper, I would imagine, an even more indelible thing th- than it already is. And so these were the two songs that were released uh, together as a single, and so we'll hear a little bit of each of them. So, Scott Fryman, um, in a way, this uh, the story of Sgt. Pepper begins with these two songs that aren't on the album, right? The, the, the pulling yes, off the road and heading into the studio. Well, what do they yes. do first? They do these things. Explain why that was and why these aren't on the album. So these first started in November of 1966. They had all taken some time off after their last tour ended in August, and they come back into the studio. John brings in this song that he's written, Strawberry Fields Forever, and they spend a tremendous amount of time working on it. And there's so many things going on in that song. It's just a, a really incredible work. It's actually two completely different recordings that are have, uh, featuring two different complete orchestrations, arrangements that are then synced up with recording technology. One side sped up, one side slowed down. And as they're working on Strawberry Fields Forever, Paul has been thinking about an idea for a concept album as their first statement as a studio-only band. And he starts to think about an album about growing up in Liverpool, about their childhood. He's already got When I'm 64, which is a song that dates back from their cavern days. And he decides he needs a companion piece to John's piece, and he writes Penny Lane, which in its, way, in its own way is another extraordinary song, a wonderful McCartney composition, a great arrangement by George Martin. And as they're working on these songs and finishing them up, these are going to be the first two songs of this new album project, the Liverpool project, if you will. And Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, is getting a little nervous because there hasn't been any Beatles product for Christmas. The newspapers are starting to say the Beatles have broken up. He's renegotiating the Beatles deal with EMI, and he doesn't want uh, people thinking that the Beatles aren't going to be a going concern anymore. And he goes to George Martin, and he says, give me something that I can put out to show people that the Beatles are still in existence. And Martin gives them the two songs they finished, which are Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. And in those days, what what they tried to do at at, uh, Parlophone is is not put the singles on the albums. The singles were separate. They didn't show up on the albums in most cases. And so those two songs were kept off of the next album project, and McCartney needed a new idea, which was Sgt. Pepper. 
Yeah, I think Steve Rain and paperback writer did not appear on Revolver. Uh, Correct. Correct. So, so this is sort of something that no, nobody really does anymore. But you do sort of wonder. I mean, look, we could be here for 30 minutes talking about the amount of avant-gardism and studio wizardry that went into Strawberry Fields, and I think that would not be a good use of our time. But the reality but, but is... It, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say it, what's important to realize is it wasn't just studio wizardry for the sake of studio wizardry. It could have been a total, total mess mm. because they were doing all of these these quite frankly crazy things in the studio and yet it's it's a beautiful beautiful complex introspective work of art it's it it's holds up to analysis after analysis and the song itself the core song that Lennon wrote is such a great song mm-hmm. and so it's not just going to the studio and let's see what kind of crazy things we can do it's really taking that core song of John's and can, and working on different work in the studio, different engineering tricks, different orchestrations, different arrangements to be able to come out with this really extraordinary composition. And and you do think, I mean, I think we know which two songs would go to make room for, for Strawberry Fields and, and Penny Lane. Well, yeah, that is the other sort of, I don't know, to me, little nasty secret of Sgt. Pepper, which uh, there are these two songs that nobody much talks about or cares about. And, and I think at least in my opinion, really are don't measure up to the rest of them. And, and I think that's sort of acknowledged, but nobody, nobody really likes to say it out loud. I, I, don't, I don't know your feelings. All right, Steve, so what are the two songs? Well, I think you know what they are, but they're uh, fixing a hole and getting better. Interesting, because I've heard other people say, you know, why do we need When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita and so forth. Really? Uh, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, the album is, is, a, is a journey in a lot of ways. And which is why I think it needs to be listened to as an album. Mm. You are moving from style to style, from sort of the personality of the narrator and the characters they're talking about from one to the other and so forth. You know, for me, maybe I'm an exception here, but I I think the album holds together pretty well. I do think there are better songs that the Beatles have written, but I like the way the album holds together. And I, I think... Those songs, in addition to When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita, have, a, have an important place on the album because they give uh, some more weight to the songs around them as well. You know, I think you need kind of a break from Within You Without You before you can come back into A Day in the Life at the end of that side. And, and on, on the first side, you've got She's Leaving Home and you just finished with Lucy in the Sky. And, you know, I, I think they provide a, a value there. Scott, I want to play a little bit of the kind of thing that you do in this movie so people can get a sense of it. And what we'll do is we'll just take a little bit of what you do with uh, the opening cut. So this is some deconstruction of Sergeant Pepper itself. Okay, now listen for that echo chamber. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. They've been going in and out of style, but they're guaranteed to raise a smile. So may I introduce to you the active number all these years, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. And then the horns. Here's a guitar part you might not have picked up on. And of course, three-part vocals from George, John, and Paul. Sergeant 
So, Scott, tell us your method. Tell us, tell the, the audience what it is that you're doing there. What, what are you using and, and what are you accomplishing? So what I'm trying to do is give people a little window into the Beatles' creative process because it not only makes you appreciate their music better, which I believe, but it makes you appreciate all music better. And a lot of people have never been in a studio. They've never, never written a song, Some you know, don't play an instrument. And they think these songs kind of spring to life in the studio. You set up microphones and there you have it. And I want to show the tremendous amount of work that went into these songs. And I do that by taking apart the tracks, isolating pieces, talking about the effects they use, talking about the arrangements that George Martin made, talking about the type of, of work that went into the take-by-take take of creating the song, and trying to tell some interesting stories along the way so that people listen to this music with fresh ears. And, you know, I mean, Metcalf, I'm sure somebody with your level of acumen is hearing all kinds of things that I'm not hearing, but even somebody like me, I mean, we were reminded even in what we just played here, I don't think I ever thought, wow, the vocal on Sergeant Pepper, you know, <laughs> well, but well, you you listen to Paul and he's just, you know, he's giving it all. I was right? just thinking that too, yeah. Me, me too. I mean, and, and the, the amazingness of Paul McCartney's voice, especially at that period, is just can't be overstated. I mean, there you have his kind of raw, soulful, rocky voice. You know, a few tracks later, you have the cherubic McCartney voice singing She's Leaving Home. I mean, it is a phenomenal vocal instrument, you know. And, of course, needless to say, this is all before auto-tune or anything like that. And Exactly. And his yes. pitch is laser-like. We're going to uh, take a little break here. We're talking about Sgt. Pepper. We hope you're enjoying it. And uh, we'll, as we go out of this segment, play one of those songs that I guess we're uh, not entirely reconciled about. Uh, it actually is kind of an earworm, so we'll, we'll go out of this segment with Getting Better. It's getting better all the time. So we're talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We have uh, so many things to say, and we have uh, two great guests to say those things. Scott Fryman, a musicologist, composer, producer, lecturer behind Deconstructing Sgt. Pepper's, also with us. Uh, we wouldn't do it without him. Steve Metcalf, director of the University of Hartford's President's College, writes about music for, among other places, us at WNPR.org. Uh, and always does these shows with us. So I want to just talk for a moment about the idea of a concept album. And one of the things, Scott, that you point out in your presentation is it was a time when there were going to be other groups kind of do doing things that might be called concept albums. But I don't know, this maybe went a little further, right? McCartney had this vision uh, of connecting the past with the present with this kind of, you know, music hall band that somehow or other connected to psychedelia. Was this really kind of, in your view, the first time there was something like that, a, an established rock band giving itself to a concept? Well, so I, I do think that there are there's a dispute about whether this is a concept album at all, because mm -hmm. really, you know, I think that McCartney's original concept uh, was to have this even more of that band kind of narrating us through the album. There would be some kind of connecting story, and clearly there is no story that connects the songs. When I describe it, I describe it as the, the concept is is journeying through these different moods, these different styles, these different characters. But if you if compare it to something like, you know, Days of Future Past or uh, some of the other concept albums to come where there is some story, some something that threads the first track down to the last track, I don't think Sgt. Pepper is that. 
But I, I do think that it did accomplish what McCartney wanted, which is freeing them from being the older Beatles, the touring Beatle band, and being a band that could play in lots of different styles, whether it was Indian music or uh, circus or uh, the, the concert hall of She's Leaving Home. And and to, to the point that you made earlier, a lot of this had already been done to some extent on Revolver. I don't know. So, Steve, I guess one of the questions is, is this different somehow from an album where the band just kind of coughs up the best songs that it has available? Are there songs kind of written in service? Like, would Mr. Kite, for example, ha- have been written if they weren't in the service of some kind of thing that they were trying to do a little bit separate from just... I mean, usually I, I think a band's album is just the best songs that they've written recently, right? Right. No, it's a good question. And actually, I, I had a thought about this going back 50 years when, when it first came out, which is which is that, you know, we were all... Many of us were very taken with the idea that because of the Beatles, pop music and rock music could now be considered art. And and there was something oddly satisfying about that idea. I'm not even sure quite why. But I would say that if we're talking about the idea of a concept album, to me, the concept is that it becomes, sort of in the way that Revolver also was, a sort of catalog demonstrating what pop music can be, demonstrating obviously what these four musicians can produce, but also demonstrating what the idea of pop and rock music can can possibly be. It can be non-Western, it can be electronic, it can be a, a kind of social commentary, it can be a an old-fashioned love ballad. You know, it can be all these things and still somehow fit on one LP, which I think itself is an interesting concept and, and remains so. Yeah, I would agree with that, Steve, and, and, and I would tie in also the album presentation, the artwork, the mm. cover art, the, the, mm-hmm. the gatefold, the, the lyrics on the back, the cutouts that came with it. I mean, it, this was a presentation of a work of art. It wasn't just another collection of songs. Mm-hmm. I want to just play another song uh, here. I, I was, first of all, gratified by, Scott, what you did with this song. It's a song I've always been fond of, but I, I didn't really know whether anybody else cared about it very much or not. Uh, I should say it by its proper title, which I believe is Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, exclamation point. So let's, let's play a little bit of it, and then I want to um, get you guys to talk about it a little bit more. This is one of Lennon's cuts. Most people know by now it's based on an actual 1840s poster that he, he owned. But let's hear a little bit of it. I'll just first of all give you the kind of dumb guy version of this, and then the two smart guys can kind of talk. But I, I remember, you know, as being a young dumb guy listening to this and just thinking, wow, this is just really great. And that was pretty much what I got out of it. Um, and I, I'm not, not that much further along now, although as I was thinking about it for this show, I was thinking, to me, it always felt kind of marvelously two-dimensional, like some kind of French modernist slash surrealist cartoon came alive. 
you know, but kind of alive in two dimensions. It, it, you, you're hearing all this stuff be described in this very mannered way, I guess. And the music is really, really supporting that, but not in a way that I could have put in words to. So, uh, Scott, I'll start with you, because just watching the documentary, I thought, oh, well, that's why it sounds French, because they did all these things, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they clearly uh, had a lot of fun putting this together, especially with that middle section. They put a lot of work into lots of different fun parts that were then uh, recorded at half speed and sped up. And this is not only Lennon and the, the, the Beatles putting this together. This is an example of how important George Martin was to the group. Because George Martin, before the Beatles, had this whole career with uh, comedy albums. And a lot of the techniques that he developed working with people like Peter Sellers and Dudley Moore were things that he brought to the Beatles. He was as creative in many ways as the other guys were. And so he could, he could hold up with them. When they came up with an idea, he could come up with one better and vice versa. So they fed off one another. And, and any other producer, I think it would have been hard for this environment to exist in the same way. I think George Martin was another one of the guys when it came to putting especially this album together and a song like Mr. Kite shows that. All right, uh, let's do something else that will be oddly touching. This We're going to hear a little bit from, once again, Scott's documentary, but this is the deconstruction of, I think, maybe the most uh, affecting and touching song on the album, and that's She's Leaving Home. So there are four violins, two violas, two cellos, a double bass, and a harp. Now we'll hear John and Paul recorded twice to sound like four voices. Quietly turning the back door key. Stepping outside, she is free. She, we gave her most of our lives, is leaving, sacrificed most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. And as you watch Scott's documentary, you also find out, as you can also read in other books, that this is actually about a real young uh, lady who did uh, leave home, who disappeared for a while, um, and eventually came to America and changed her name to Faith Middleton. So that's uh, kind of a wonderful. No, that's not. That's not. That did not happen. Uh, Makeup, I do want to go to you first, because I have this question that isn't maybe dispositively answerable, but, you know, listening to, to what Scott did there, A, pulling out the strings like that and then kind of narrating them a little bit, I find myself wondering how much the Beatles, as opposed to George Martin, and, and I think Scott establishes it anyway that Martin didn't write this arrangement. I think this is the one that was farmed out to, to uh, another arranger. But there's, there's such a good understanding of what strings can do here. You know, when the double bass comes in at the very bottom of it with that sound, I, I'm thinking, wow, you know, it sounds like a real composer for strings has written this as opposed to some rocker dropping some strings into his thing. And I'm wondering whether you think that McCartney at this point is the person who really knows what he wants, exactly what he wants in that regard, or how much of it is a classical arranger 
jumping well, in. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I actually doubt, as much as I admire Paul's musical instincts, I, I rather doubt that he had much input into any of those string arrangements. What I would say, and I think Scott will agree with me, is, is that we need to, uh, we need to salute uh, uh, just a career producer-arranger named Mike Leander, who did that arrangement, who I, I don't know what his training was, but I don't think that that string and harp arrangement suffers at all, you know, in comparison to the standard that, that Martin himself established with, say, Eleanor Rigby or others. You know, there's counterpoint, there's, there's contrary motion, there are all the things that we music geeks kind of look for when, when trying, to, trying to isolate and identify, you know, a really solidly done string arrangement. And, and we only need to look at the lousy Phil Spector string treatments a few albums later to, to see that that is not a given. It's not a thing you can count on in that business. So, so I, I think that's a, a absolutely critical component of that song. There were some people, and Steve, I'll, I'll let you start on, out on this. I mean, obviously the, the general reaction to this was a claim and a claim that went on for years. As you know, Steve, I, as a ninth grader, was uh, in, under the thrall of an English teacher named Tyler Tingley, who felt that we would probably understand James Joyce and other things that we needed to understand that, was, that were full of illusions uh, and symbolism coupled with random folly, that we uh, maybe our best chance would be through this music. He had us studying Sgt. Pepper and, and some of the other music that was to come from there, from 67 to, to 69. But there are some people, there were some people at the time who said, said, you know what, this is the death of rock and roll. This is like everything that was sort of spontaneous and heartfelt and edgy and ballsy and soulful about rock and roll uh, swept aside in favor of calculation, uh, invention, and sort of various kinds of tours de force that we don't really need. Is any of that a legitimate criticism? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a historically true criticism. I mean, you know, I think that argument took shape uh, most kind of concretely in the in the ancient and still brewing, you know, Beatles versus Stones conversation, you know, and the Stones would be disdainful of, you know, some of the Beatles' more mannered utterances. And even, even Lennon himself, you know, later on kind of unattractively accused Paul of writing what he called granny tunes or granny songs. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that goes on. I'm not so sure that it's that convincing anymore because... You know, it, even if it wasn't rock and roll in any recognizable sense, it, it was it was something valuable. It was something new and and fresh, and and as it turns out, something that lasts a, a half a century, and we're still talking about it. So, you know, whether it qualifies as rock and roll or not, it feels kind of irrelevant to me at the moment. Hey, Scott, what's your reaction to the the thumbs down crowd? Well, my reaction is that that, that all through. Uh, popular music, and actually back to classical times, there were there was always this group that says, "Well, this is going to destroy music forever," and it started before the Beatles. It, it's happening after the Beatles, and it's happening now. You know, EDM or hip hop or rap or heavy metal. You know, they're all going to you know music will never be the same or destroying music. I don't think you can look at it this way. I, I think you have to look at it as a defining moment in music. It changed what an album could be. It changed what you could put on an album and, and what you what you could call rock and roll or pop music or whatever you want to whatever label you want to put to this and i think that it couldn't help but influence everything that came after it it opened up a lot of possibilities 
I, I say in my lecture, you know, there were all of these bands like the Floyd and the Doors and, and other bands that were out there, Zappa, who were doing creative things. And so it's not like the Beatles invented this stuff. But they certainly helped open the floodgates, if you will, to people doing more than your typical three-minute pop song. And that journey started, you know, from the beginning, certainly from Rubber Soul, Revolver, Pepper. And uh, they sort of took a step back with the White Album and went the other direction. So you couldn't say that Sgt. Pepper was not an influential album. You can hate every song on it, but you have to say that it certainly influenced pop music going forward. I don't think that means the death of rock and roll. There are still bands that sound like you know, a band that could have been recorded in the early 60s. But it opened up a lot more possibilities. All right, we're going to grab a break here. We have one more segment. We'll be back after this. When I get older, losing my hair Many years from now Will you still be sending me Of course, is good morning. Good morning from uh, Sergeant Pepper. So Lonely Hearts Club Band. We are uh, remembering that album today. Uh, we are talking to Scott Fryman, who is a musicologist, composer, and producer, and the lecturer behind uh, Deconstructing Sergeant Pepper's. And for, I also want to just take a moment. Uh, I don't have Kyle Wolf to do this for me this week. So uh, Jonathan McNichol is the person who produced this show. Betsy Kaplan's on the board, playing all these clips. Uh, and thanks to everybody else who's uh, helping out behind the scenes. So we have a lot of things to cover, but Steve Metcalf, in many ways, this song, Good Morning, was the first song that leapt out at me off this album, maybe because it was more, it was closer to a recognizable rock and roll song than maybe some of the other ones. I didn't have a really expansive musical imagination then or maybe now, but I think if we say nothing else about this song, it's time to pause and say something about Ringo Starr. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, his his most famous contribution to this album probably is the singing on A Little Help With My Friends. But, you know, the drumming here is just like out of the wor- out of this world. Yeah, particularly since there are all these meter changes, which I'm not I'm not sure Ringo had a lot of experience with changing meters privately. Uh, I mean, prior to joining the Beatles. Although, truthfully, if if you're going to salute Ringo, as I think uh, is uh, certainly called for here. Uh, Ringo's drumming on Day in the Life. Of course, we, we could do a whole show on Day in the Life, obviously, but, um, um, you know, Ringo's drumming on Day in the Life truly is visionary and, and uh, I, I think surprised even him, as, as I think I recall him saying at some point. Um, but I just want to say one thing about, about the entire, uh, because Good Morning reminds me of this, you know, the entire feel that you get, that I get at least from, from Sgt. Pepper as dazzling as it is, is that, you know, 
the sun is kind of setting simultaneously on the Beatles. I mean, with Revolver, they kicked the door down, and it was like anything goes, and where are they going to go from here? Here it was like now we're demonstrating what we can do, um, uh, almost the apex of what we can do, and we're not going to be able to replicate that. And indeed, really, uh, they weren't able to. And and so I think you have simultaneously the satisfying feeling of having reached the mountaintop, but as I say, you know, you feel like the sun is setting in, in this kind of, in this kind of distant way. And Scott, I'm also wondering if the sun is setting a little bit on the collaborative nature of the band, uh, that maybe more now than ever, you've got situations where only one Beatle is involved in, in a particular song. I don't know if that had started earlier than that or, or, or not, but uh, I, I, well, anyway, I'll just talk about that. Well, it probably started with yesterday, which was pretty much all McCartney and, and strings, which was done with the, the rest of the Beatles' blessing. But I do think Revolver is the last time you have all four Beatles really collaborating and having fun together in the studio. I think Pepper was largely a John and Paul project, and George and Ringo were sort of side players to, to a large extent, obviously making key, key contributions, but really John and Paul were driving this. And then as you move on, you know, Brian dies, Brian Epstein, their manager dies, and you do Mystery Tour, which was, you know, Paul sort of pushing that one hard. The White Album, they're all start, start, sort of fracturing. You have, you know, Let It Be and, and Abbey Road, kind of the last hurrah. So I do think that that idea of the Beatles not functioning as a collaborative starts with Sgt. Pepper. I also want to make one other comment based on what Steve was saying. I think, you know, you can't ignore how extraordinary that orchestral buildup that ends a day in the life is, how important it is, and how dark it is. I mean, it scared me as, as a kid. And it is kind of reinforcing what Steve is saying, is that this, this, is a, this is not necessarily all fun and games, as a lot of people think of, of, of the whole flower power thing. This is something dark here, and it sort of was a, a hint towards what might be coming on the White Album just a year later. Yeah, there's so many things that I would, I'd hoped that we would get to. I had hoped we could spend a little bit of time talking about Within You, Without You, which is sort of another part mm -hmm. uh, of the fragmentation mm -hmm. we're talking about. I mean, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think any Beatle besides George Harrison was, was in the studio for any aspect of Within You, Without You. I, I'm not not sure if they were in the studio. They certainly didn't play on, on that song. Yeah, and I, I just would salute what Scott does in this movie in terms of talking about how Harrison, who was still a little bit of a, a, a neophyte, if not a dilettante to Indian music, was running very much in that mode. And then George Martin just did this overlay, overlay of you know, somewhat more Western strings that just, I mean, the whole thing is just so... It, it helped me understand what's actually going on there anyway. What, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I really think that the... The unsung hero of this album is George Martin. And, of course, the Beatles were always frustrated that he was getting too much credit. But George helped, to, uh, helped with every song on this album so much. And as much as you can, you can call out each of the individual Beatles for their contributions, Martin on songs like Within You, Without You, and, and even A Day in the Life, I mean, you couldn't have those songs without George Martin. So uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, and we're going to end with uh, playing some of uh, Day in the Life. So, Metcalf, talk us into a, a day, day in the Life. To tell us what it, <laughs> when, after you went after you'd elbowed all these old ladies and uh, babies out of the way of the Schenectady record store and gone running home with your it was, little It prize. was more children, I think. So I, I would just say this. You know, every once in a while, more, more than every once in a while, so, somewhat uh, frequently, I come across a young person. Often it's a heart school student of mine or somebody that uh, that I get to know from the school 
and and they will say something like, "So what is the deal with the Beatles here?" Because they might know, you know, "She Loves You" or "Oh Bloody" or something from whatever a commercial, uh, but they don't really have a sense of what that was all about, and they 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 know that it's important, and they know that they're supposed to think of it as important, and invariably, I will say, "Go listen to a day in the life." And equally invariably, they will come back and say, oh, okay, I get it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know. I think that's, that's, all I can, that's all I can say in one minute. Well, Scott, I can give you uh, – uh, I mean, you, you have a, a lengthy disquisition on this. And, and in a way, one of the things that you point out, one of the things that the Beatles do or maybe McCartney decides to do is kind of end the album with Sgt. Pepper coming back and then like, oh, no, there's like this one more thing, right? Yes, absolutely. And what an extraordinary thing it was. And there's so much to talk about in this song. You're going to have to have me back for another show. Yeah. But it's, uh, it is really uh, like nothing that had been heard before and maybe even since. And it was really a true collaboration between John and Paul. Ringo's drumming is outstanding, as Steve uh, mentioned. George Martin's contribution, helping them realize that orchestral buildup. And then even that idea of ending with a piano chord that just lasts until <laughs> yeah. it fades into obscurity for 45 seconds. It's just, uh, it's just breathtaking. All right, Scott Fryman, we're going to have to stop it there. But the movie is Deconstructing Sgt. Peppers. Thanks again to Steve Mitkoff. Would never do it without him. He dragged himself from his sickbed to join us today. It's been a day in the life, though. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Now they know how many holes it takes to fill the eye.